Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday. Uh, what, what date is it? Thursday, June 29th. Oh my God, <laughs> how time flies. Mark Daly, Mark Hamilton here at uh, our usual day, but a new time. We're, we're doing this hammy at a completely different time of day. You're fresh and, and energetic and ready to go. I'm fresh and energetic and ready to go. So we'll see what this uh, you know, produces at a more, you know, earlier day or earlier time in the day and see if this has a, a positive effect on the show. But it's, it, it's good to do this um you know because you know well especially it's always good to do this but there's been a lot of news going on this week and we got a, a, a race uh, coming up this week and obviously the the austrian grand prix sprint weekend on top of that but you've been also very very busy this week and you're going to be busy this weekend so you know i i just can't keep up to what you've been uh what you've been up to uh the last uh well number what a weeks months years anyhow <laughs> We've we've been having some we've been having some friends or friends we've been having some fun with our friends man so uh, if you didn't have a chance check out the podcast that we dropped on Sunday with Sam Cooper we dropped an emergency podcast with Adam Burns of DN. F1 podcast on Monday because of course that was the day that the LP news broke that Ryan Reynolds and his group are going to buy a chunk of that team. We have an upcoming show with Trey Kirby of The Athletics. Of course, he's famous for his participation in his role in the No Dunks podcast. Matt Clark is locked in. He's going to be joining us on July 8th. Megan Gilks is locked in. She'll be joining us in mid-August during the F1 slash F1 Academy summer break but yeah, so we've got a lot of stuff going on. So this is our third podcast of the week. And like you said, this one's coming a little bit early because we have a sprint weekend. So normally we would drop this Friday morning, but by the time we would drop this on Friday morning, we'd already be deep into qualifying for the Sunday Grand Prix. So we're like, you know what? It's summer. Let's get up early on a Thursday morning and record this podcast and get it out a day early. So hope everyone appreciates that. Absolutely. And before we jump into it, I just want to uh, remind everyone of our uh, you know partnership with the Race Weekend magazine. Go check them out at theraceweekend.com and that is R A C Sorry, I never get this right. R A C E W K N D dot com. <laughs> Enter in our promo code Scuderia Pod to save ten percent at checkout. Also check out uh, RacingExclusives.com. Uh, dot and the crew over there have provided us with the uh, feel fantastic half scale Max Verstappen autograph Max Verstappen uh, helmet to the winner of our fantasy uh, league uh, this year. We're very appreciative of that. Daily gist on that too. Yeah. I have developed a complex that every time I go to write race weekend in that stylized format, yeah. I can never. Get the spelling right, so I have to go and Google the website. So you're not the only one, but R A C E W K N D. We're we'll get there together. There we'll get we there go. together. Yeah, eventually we'll get it right. Um, before we uh, get into the news, uh, you pulled up a really cool graphic here from Brembo, and this is a uh, it's an F1 Breaks infographics, uh, and it's a very cool uh, little uh, uh, graphic here. It's got uh, some of the very very interesting and incredible stats that go into a Formula One brake disc. So a, a car, obviously a road car. Um, yeah, it's absolutely incredible. A um, so Formula One car, carbon fiber uh, disc brakes. Sports car has cast iron discs. A production time for a Formula One brake disc takes five to six months. 
compared to 24 hours for a cast iron disc. So the the, the big difference obviously is in weight. A uh, a Formula One brake disc, a carbon one, is in the range of one to 1.2 kilograms, or about two to two and a half, just under three pounds. And compared to 15 kilos, or about 32 pounds for a road car, which is uh, you know incredible. And so it's made entirely of carbon with more than a thousand holes for greater efficiency and or sorry for lighter and cooling efficiency brake range is incredible 350 to a thousand degrees centigrade compared to minus 50 to uh 500 degrees centigrade that's the the, the use range for a, a sports car duration of the disc this is a big a big one hundred thousand kilometers for a uh for for a sports car compared just to only 12 000, sorry 1200 kilometers for a formula one brake disc that is uh absolutely incredible I, I don't even want to know what the price difference is but uh, of course uh you know you you could say it's space age technology but i guess sometimes you know the you know space age could be trying to keep up with the formula one because i mean the technology that and uh things that are developed for formula one racing is absolutely incredible and moving on to a couple of, uh, it should be like this day in Formula One history or something like that. But in this week, so this comes from the uh, the Mercedes-AMG F1 official Twitter account. And uh, on this week in 2012, Michael Schumacher scored their first podium with the team in Valencia. First and only podium yeah. with Mercedes in the three oh, years yeah, that he's with that, that team. I guess that would have been, yeah, that, that's right. And then, well, when then we hit uh, 2014 and the rest is uh, is history. And then a very cool tie-in, and this uh, comes from, uh, well, multiple sources, but the one we have here in the show notes comes from at F1 on Twitter. So Mick Schumacher is going to drive his father Michael's Mercedes W02 at the uh, the Goodwood Festival of Speed that's coming up very soon. So that is, uh, that's very, very cool. So we're, we're, we're right into this, uh, you know, like I, I, I can't, I, I'm so much more energetic. I, I, I didn't, uh, didn't expect this, you know, I'm used to sitting down with you uh, late at night. So let, let's just keep this, uh, the, keep this going, Mark. So uh, the next one comes from Philip Horton and uh, junior motorsports news from the FIA. The life cycle of a chassis will ex- be extended from three to six seasons for financial reasons. The new F2 chassis will be used from 2024 to 29 and the new F3 chassis will be used from 2025 to 2030 the current chassis will have been used for six years anyways by then so that's uh that's pretty cool and uh everything these days seems to be about uh, <clears throat> excuse me about saving money and prolonging things which kind of sort of makes sense especially in those junior formula of uh of racing all right. Are we ready to do some Formula One uh, su- or, uh, news here, Mark? Let's do it. All Let's right. jump into the. I, I'm going to jump into this one because I'm super pumped about okay. this. So, okay. first of all, you you cautioned me that you aren't necessarily a morning person. I don't believe that's <laughs> the case. I I think you choose to be a night person because you are doing awesome so far. The next story here comes from uh, Racing News 365. It's written by you and Gail, and it's a kind of a compilation of quotes from Helmut Marko. And Helmut Marko was recently on a podcast, and there was a number of revelations from this podcast, including the fact that he was very clear that he did not sign up for, actually, sorry, that he did sign up for the Nick DeVries experience, and it was against the wishes, perhaps, of Christian Horner, that Christian Horner said, hey, we shouldn't do this, and he was kind of eating some crow that, hey, I had lobbied for this. It was my mistake. But there were some other revelations that came out of this as well, including the fact that the greater kind of Red Bull family is rethinking their strategy around Alpha Tauri. And he indicates that for 2024, and I quote here, this is a quote from Helmut Marko, there will be new sponsors and a new name. The direction is clear to follow Red Bull Racing as far as the regulations allow. Designing your own car is the wrong way to go. So we already know there's going to be some pretty big changes at Alpha Tauri or whatever they're going to become. But obviously we know that team principal, Franz Tost, will be gone at the end of the season. He's retiring and he's going to be replaced by Ferrari Racing Director Laurent Mekis and former FIA Secretary General Peter Bayer. So organizationally, they're introducing some big changes. But what he's saying here is the current strategy, one, the sponsors, two, the name, and three, the design strategy are all going to be scrapped. And one of the things that's always surprised me, and again, everyone listening to this show knows I hate the idea of 
Uh, B teams, it drives me freaking crazy. It shouldn't be allowed. But one of the things that's always been unique about this is that at least for the last couple of years, aside from the power unit, Red Bull's really given Alpha Tauri a lot of autonomy in designing their car. And the reality is what they should have been doing for in the spirit of one, creating the most competitive car possible, and furthermore, in the spirit of reducing cost, is they should have just been using as many parts as possible from the Milton Keynes-based Red Bull team, and they haven't been doing that. And you and I have talked in the past as a Formula One team, you have to design your own chassis. But beyond that, you can buy parts, you can borrow parts, you can buy IP, all this kind of stuff. But there's a lot of cases where Alpha Tauri have been designing and developing parts internally that they could be buying from Red Bull. And what Helmut Marko is saying here is that's over. That, hey, they have to design their own chassis, we get that. They're going to share the same power unit because that makes the most sense. But if there's any part that they can buy from Red Bull, they will be buying it from Red Bull. So I think that autonomy is going to be gone. And if you look at the results this year, it kind of makes sense. They're dead last in the championship. Yuki's got two one-point P10 finishes, and that's about it. Yeah. You know, th this is interesting because, um, uh, you know, Ryan Vermeulen, uh, Ryan in Saskatoon, sent us an email uh, exactly on this uh, topic, or just at least on the uh, topic of the uh, the uh, AlphaTauri name change. Anyways, uh, I'll just read this out because I think uh, that we can generate a little bit of discussion about this. So, anyways, Ryan starts by saying, you probably saw the news of AlphaTauri team name changing next year, according to Helmut Marco. Do we really care if this team is uh, trying not to win? This is a junior team competing against nine professional teams trying to win. There's no reason why AT shouldn't have a car that is competitive with the Red Bull car. Red Bull would never allow that, though. They can't have another team under the same umbrella challenging their Red Bull car. Did you know that the four major uh, sports leagues in North America actually have a rule that you must try to win the game? A great example of this was uh, the NFL's Raiders versus Chargers in the last game of the season last year. The team that wins would make the playoffs, and it also meant that the Steelers would not or would make the playoffs. If the game ended in a tie, the Chargers and the Raiders both make off make the playoffs, but the Steelers would be eliminated. Well, that game went into overtime, and the Raiders won a field goal with zero seconds left on the clock. The Raiders could have just taken a couple of knees to kill the clock and end in a tie, thus making the playoffs, but that would have been considered not trying to win and anti-competitive. This is how I view the Alpha Tauri team, and it is maddening. There are only a limited 10 teams on the grid, and we are wasting one team or two cars on a team that is trying or not trying to win. Cheers, Ryan from Saskatoon. I, I think he's encapsulated that and summed it up uh, exactly right. Uh, you know, like we've been sitting here talking about like our dislike for B teams for well, as long as we've been doing the show years. together. Yeah, years, years and years. And yeah, years. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and I think that uh, that, that uh, example that he uses uh, of the Raiders and, and Chargers game from last year and that anti-competitive rule, I think is, is perfect. But, you know, it's it's it's. I, I don't know. It, it's funny because that rule doesn't really exist in Formula One. It's just like, as long as you show up and your car conforms to all the rules, it's just like, you, you know, it's just like, do whatever you want. You know, if you don't want to try and win or you don't want to, you know, you're unable to win, you know, I guess that's almost irrelevant, isn't it? Yeah, I totally agree. And I totally agree with this point about the fact that there are, there are, uh, there is a global shortage of Formula One teams. There are 10 of them. <laughs> and, yes, and I love that yes. point that, at any given time, there are only nine teams that are actually contending for the championship. And I think this is an embarrassment for Liberty, and I think it's an embarrassment for the FIA. Um, and they should they should force the hand of Red Bull and force a sale going into the next Concord agreement. Like, look, I, at the end of the day, if Red Bull sells Alpha Tauri, they're going to walk away with a cool billion dollars. That's a great return on your investment. You should be doing the same thing that everyone else does, which is developing your drivers in the junior formulas. Like This is, this is an ongoing embarrassment, and I think Formula One needs to rectify it yeah I, I just find it very interesting that the the other big teams don't really or the other the other nine teams collectively have never really said anything yeah that's you a know? great point it's, it's, why are they not campaigning against yeah, this especially like ferrari and mercedes you think that uh out of the the other remaining nine teams they would have the biggest uh you know stake in that because they are you know historically directly in competition with uh with red bull even more so than the the other remaining nine teams that kind of have you know a flash in the pan every once in a while and kind of do some interesting things but you know maybe Aston Martin feels that way too you know they don't really have any connections with Red Bull but yeah it's just uh it's an ongoing weird situation that uh, I, I don't know Mark it, it just seems that 
it, it it's becoming grained into Formula One, and I just don't see it disappearing unless, like you say, the rest of the teams, you know, force them to do something. But it's it, it seems, I don't know, unfortunately to me, it seems unlikely to, to do so. Okay, let's uh, move on to uh, Ferrari and Carlos Sainz. So he uh, sets a winter target to sort out a new Ferrari contract, and he denies uh, links uh, to any uh, you know possible mover discussions with Audi. Uh, this is uh, an article on Motorsport.com from uh, Jonathan Noble. And um, well, you know we're waiting for some drivers to uh, to sign new deals. Uh, we, we know that uh, a new contract for Lewis Hamilton seems to possibly be in the works, and that's been uh, mentioned uh, quite a few times so um, Carlos Sainz's uh, contract with Ferrari runs until the end of next year end of 2024 and you know he would be I would think um, you know a driver that would be of interest to a new team like uh, like Audi that is set to uh, take to the track and join Formula One uh, for the first time in 2026 and uh, you know we're entering this kind of weird kind of in-between time where they're not really going to be Alfa Romeo anymore and they're kind of, I guess, sort of going to go back to being sauber. They'll be sauber for yeah, a couple of years. Yeah. 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 And then they'll go back to, or they'll go back to, but uh, then they'll finally become uh, uh, become uh, Audi. But, um, you know, Valtteri Bottas, you'd think, would be uh, a, a guy that, uh, you know, I kind of wonder, you know, will he stick around and still be there in 2026? And you've got Joe Guan Yu, who's uh, got, you know, a couple of years of Formula One under his belt. But, you know, Carlos Sainz, you know, interesting but would he really want to leave ferrari under his own you know by his own choice to join uh, a team that i mean it, it is possible that uh that that audi will hit a a home run right out of the gates but uh it's it seems unlikely based on historic norms i mean the the only team to ever really do that in modern formula one would have been braun gp way back in in 2009 and they, they you know well much like audi they inherited uh a a formula one team and did something amazing with it but interesting topic to talk about right the yeah. by the way just just to be clear the quote the quote that kind of sparked this conversation came from carlos Sainz in a recent interview and he said i don't want to lie i don't like starting a season knowing it's the last year of my contract i just want to know what awaits me in the long run i have had previous experience with red bull and Renault. i know that not knowing your future is not ideal for a professional racer for this season a priority next winter will be to clarify my position being understood that's for me the main objective is to win one day at ferrari something i've made clear many times this will be my winter priority if not possible, I'll be forced to look elsewhere. So it's interesting that he's, he, so his con, and by the way, I'll back this up. In April of 2022, he signed a two-year extension with Ferrari, which I thought at the time was very generous. So he's under contract for the rest of this year, and he's under contract for 24. In Formula One, being under contract for multiple years, two years or three years, is extremely generous. Like F1 teams do not commit longer than two or three years to a driver. So he's in the middle of a two-year deal, and he's already... I, He's already complaining that he wants, because when he says clarity, what he's really asking for is assurances or a written contract giving him security beyond 24. And if I'm Ferrari, there's absolutely no way I would commit to that. And furthermore, if, if I'm Carlos Sainz, like even knowing that I have a job next year with Ferrari is, is a pretty good peace of mind in the sense that I get another year with a top tier team to demonstrate my capabilities. And if Ferrari isn't interested in resigning me, well, that's probably because of my own performance. And I don't have a lot of leverage in that conversation unless I perform. But it is interesting that he makes this comment here. What was it again? Um, something to the effect that I will have to look or I will have to consider my other, I'll be forced to look elsewhere is the specific quote. But yeah, I thought, Little, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. Very brave of him to be making borderline threats midway through a generous two-year deal. Um, and again, again, if Ferrari's not willing to commit, it's because they're not liking what they see out of him on the track. And that's a Carlos Sainz problem, not a Ferrari problem. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And when I hear these, uh, when I think about the, the, the situation a little bit more, I can totally see where he's coming from, right? Because Red Bull, they put um, Max to a long-term contract. Ferrari put his teammate, Charles Leclerc under a long-term contract. Uh, can you really compare uh, Carlos Sainz to Max Verstappen? Yeah, I, I don't think so. 
<laughs> I think that's that's a pretty question or a pretty easy question to answer. But sure, he's going to compare himself to Charles Leclerc. He's also going to com- uh, compare himself to Lando Norris over at uh, McLaren, who also has what we think to be a multi-year deal. And of course, um, a lot of this is just, uh, you know, it, it's speculation because there, there's nowhere are those terms of uh, contracts uh, and length released that we can f- compare to, um, you know, other sports like the NBA or, you know, uh, the, the NFL, etc. right? Um yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely think it's fair for him to maybe consider, you know, throw himself in that conversation with uh, with Charles and Lando, similar age, similar, ex- well, a little bit more experience if you're you're um, if you're Carlos Sainz. But yeah, if you haven't been producing the goods, what leverage do you really have? And you know, it, it it just seems kind of like a like like a funny thing. I just um, you know the the quotes the the part of it. I'll, I'll be forced to look elsewhere and like you say if if he hasn't gotten the job okay. done good it's luck just, with that yeah yeah, yeah good luck exactly, with that exactly exactly you know i i know that there's some bigger issues with the ferrari themselves but you know we've seen other drivers and other teams in the present and in the past do a lot more with a lot less or you know just just you know excel in circumstances be them either good or bad i mean look, look at george what he did at uh with those years at williams williams hasn't been a a great team but you know he became mr saturday i mean that was that was his niche right and uh where, where he was ex- very very good at qualifying and um you know it, he was able to uh, you know work that into eventually a move to mercedes right Daily, I know we're on a time crunch this morning. I'm eager to talk about the next story. So according to Jonathan Noble over at motorsport.com, high tech has confirmed an F1 bid as it announces a major new investor. And he writes, the Silverstone-based squad, which currently races in Formula 2, Formula 3, and Formula 4, announced on Monday that its parent company, High Tech Global Holdings Limited, has sold a 25% stake to Kazakh businessman Vladimir Kim and says, Kim, motorsport has been a long-standing personal interest for me and I'm delighted to be entering into a partnership with an organization that has enjoyed success in so many categories and has so much ambitions for the future we have established involvement with sport however this is our first global investment in motorsport it's dynamic appeal growing exposure business to business marketing opportunities and burgeoning fan base are aligned with my ambitions personally and commercially and says high tech CEO Oliver Oaks I am delighted to welcome Vladimir Kim to the high tech group during our discussions we found many natural synergies and I know that his support will be invaluable as we seek to build on high tech success and work towards achieving its broader ambitions over the years to come and writes Jonathan Noble the investment deal comes as high tech hopes to get the nod from the FIA to be able to join the F1 grid in the near future as it officially announced has lodged an application to secure a slot for 26 so you and I have sat here for months speculating about who has and who hasn't submitted a bid we obviously know Andretti Global has we know Lucky Suns has uh, we know now 100% that high tech has but yeah just interesting and I, I think at some point this summer this year the FIA will probably share with the commercial rights group Liberty that hey these are the bids that we would consider acceptable and then obviously uh, the ball will rest in the commercial rights group's hands in terms of hey how do we want to proceed do we want to proceed do we want to kick this can down the road but high tech taking on a major major investor to help uh to help uh, nurture their bid going forward you know quite uh, an interesting uh, development as well and i think it, it parlays uh, nicely into a another story that we have a little bit further down the uh, the outline here so i'm going to pull that one up now and that comes from racefans.net and this um, uh, an article by will wood and uh, it's titled liberty media would want quote a hell of a lot more than 20 billion to sell f1 so this is a, uh, a quote from uh, Liberty Media CEO uh, Greg Maffey, who denied that the Saudi Public Investment Fund had made an approach about uh, you know, potentially purchasing Formula One for a rumored $20 billion earlier this year. So when he's, uh, Maffey had to say, quote, the Saudis have been partners on a couple of things. They have a race, Aramco as a sponsor, but they never approached us. And he ta- uh, he said to the Walker uh, webcast, uh, he goes on further to say, quote, and frankly, 20 billion, billion would not be an attractive price. It's trading for 17 billion, 18 billion. Why 20? I'd want a hell of a lot more than that. We're pretty bullish on the future. We're C-Corp, meaning that if we sell a division, we pay a corporate level tax, then any proceeds we would pay 
paid that get uh, distributed to our shareholders, they would, in addition, pay tax. If we were to spin Formula One away, create a separate company, wait a sufficient time, have no plan or intent to sell, that uh, asset could be sold down the road and there would be no corporate level tax. So what I was really saying is that uh, the way we're look structured today, given that low tax basis, we would not be sellers. If we wish to be sellers or even consider it right, you'd need to do a spin and spinning it right away. There are other reasons why we might do that. It's uh, just not to do a sale. Uh, but the way that we are structured, structured, pardon me, that would be very unattractive, end quote. So there you go, because that was interesting. That story probably came out, it was earlier this year, wasn't it? Um, during, just before the start of the season, right? Yeah. And uh, I, I think that... Um, you know, the, the, the Saudi public investment fund, you probably know a little bit more about uh, these things. I think it was an interesting, uh, you know, a potential buyer, but, you know, because we were kind of, yeah, and, and Liberty, if they choose to sell Formula One at the in the future and, and, and make money off of that sale, I think that's uh, to totally their prerogative and uh, with, uh, within their rights. I mean, how they have advanced the sports globally in virtually every different facet that you can think of since they took over from Bernie in 2017 it's it's almost like it's a completely different sport mark you know I kind of go back to think you know e even then just where we were to where we are now I mean we, we never would have had an F1 TV pro but I mean we go back to simple things like you know you feel like you know just even like video and social media posts for people covering the sport and just very simple things and just their their imprint on social media in general i mean th those seems like give you know those seem like givens in this day and age but uh, everything that they've done in addition to that in, in every you know, uh, facet is just completely it, it, it's incredible how much they've advanced the ball in just half a dozen years or so mark yeah i totally agree in fact one day maybe it's something we can do in the season we can kind of do a podcast that's just the before and after like hey this is this is what the f1 experience was <laughs> we'll in the early years of turbo hybrid <laughs> with bernie and this is what it's been like in the six or seven years since his uh his much uh, celebrated, at least at my house, his much celebrated departure. But yeah, it's interesting that Liberty chose that they needed to respond through uh, Mafi. But it's it's probably appropriate too that there's going to be speculation about somebody looking to take on. And I I, I kind of get where people are coming from when they talk about the PIF possibly uh, looking to make an investment in in the Formula One group. Obviously, uh, they recently merged Live Golf with the PGA Tour, um, and I think they're very active globally with with sports properties um, so it only makes sense and I think at 20 billion dollars f1 would be a bargain so I think they're probably right to to hold and not sell but then again Liberty is a, a media and a content company they're not a private equity company that's looking to shine up the property and spin it off or sell sell the parts like they're they're probably like in it. yeah 100 percent right? they're probably in it for the long term so yeah, and then the only other thing, just well before we move on to the next story here, is there was a tweet, and I shared this on the last podcast, and I apologize, I always butcher his name, but uh, Toby Grunier, Toby Grunier, is, is is it Toby Gruner? Toby Gruner. So it's it's actually pronounced as it's spelled. So Mark, you're an imbecile. Um, he writes that <laughs> according to our information, three F1 teams have been approached by potential buyers or investors last year with offers valuing those teams at one billion or more. All three rejected the sale of equity stakes. Um, and obviously, I think we can assume that one of those was probably Alpha Tauri. One of those was probably. Um, yeah, I don't know what the other two would have been. That's interesting. Maybe Haas was one of them, but interesting. Could be. Williams, maybe? Could yeah, be? Williams we, is we a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It'd, be, it'd be interesting if uh, th those names ever, you know, bubble up to the surface and find out uh, find out a little bit more. It, it, it's just interesting in general where, you know, you hear all the stories, you know, like the, you know, the emergency pod that you and Adam did uh, earlier this week. And then uh, this story uh, or this uh, little little snippet of news from Toby Gruner, the whole Audi, the whole just just like I say, I mean, like the, the, the landscape of Formula One just in general in, you know, the half dozen years under Liberty's, uh, you know, 
leadership is a, a completely different landscape. It's incredible. Okay, let's uh, move on to uh, the the next story and things uh, I didn't expect uh, to to hear. And this comes from RacingNews365.com and Aaron Decker's. Uh, Alonso declares Hamilton trust as F1 rivalry renewed. So as we know, Fernando and Lewis have a little bit of history, (laughs) more than a little history. Anyways, uh, Fernando had uh, praised both Max and Lewis for their what he called their respectful Formula One uh, racecraft, and uh, it's it's really interesting because uh i'm not really used to this fernando right this this kind of like chill fernando it's 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 taken him like more than two decades in formula one to get rid of that 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 fiery sometimes very nasty side uh of his uh of himself and uh so i'll read the quote here uh, he says, quote, I really enjoyed these battles and these podiums. There's a lot of respect, a lot of talent when you fight against Max and Lewis. You know that you cannot make a mistake because they will take advantage of that and they will not make a mistake. So if you want to beat them, you need to be 10th after 10th, fastest to close that gap. It's not anything that will benefit. It's a very intense battle, very fair, very respectful. Even the overtaking possibility that we had on DR- on the DRS when I passed Lewis, you know that you can trust what he's doing. He will defend hard, but within the limits. I guess it's the same at the start. When you start in the first two rows with these guys, you know that there's a sense of awareness and respect that is not sometimes in other parts, end quote. So, Mark, what, what do you think? Was that uh, something you were expecting to hear from the no. lips of Fernando Alonso no. this week or I, ever? <laughs> I just I have to say as well that after the Canadian Grand Prix where you had Lewis and you had Fernando and you had Max in the cool-down room and they're posing for photos and they've got their arms around each other that, well, there has never been an intense rivalry between Max and Fernando. Like you said, there's clearly been an intense rivalry between Lewis and Fernando. And obviously there was between, is between Lewis and Max. But I, I just, I felt so, it felt like the world was right, that flowers were coming out of the ground and the birds were singing. That <laughs> The fact that the three of them could all be in such good spirits in the cool down room at the same time made me feel really good because I like a good rivalry. I really do. But I really didn't like what I saw the last few years between Lewis and Max. And I, I hated what that rivalry triggered within the F1 community, which was just this, on both sides, this horrendously toxic, this incredibly toxic atmosphere. Um, but I, I really like the fact that you could have three drivers um, at the absolute top of their game scoring podiums and celebrating happily together in the cooldown room. Now, at some point, as the gaps between Red Bull and the rest of the field continue to tighten up, I think that that cheeriness will probably deplete a little bit because there'll be a, a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more competitive spirit, but I thought it was great to see. And I just, I cannot believe who this Fernando Alonso is. One, the fact that here we are daily, we're sitting here on June 29th and he scored podiums in six of the eight races scored so far, I've finished so far, including two P2s. And we're talking about, hey, you know what? He just needs an opening, an opportunity to possibly score a race win this year for the first time in a decade. Lewis is all of a sudden, his season's turned around because Mercedes has cracked the code of whatever it was that was uh, prohibiting them from developing their car, the W14, in a meaningful way. Mark, everything is right in the world. I am very, very happy with where the championship is going for the first time this year. Yeah, so am I. It, uh, I, I think, obviously, that this is uh, Max and Red Bull's championship to, to lose. But uh, it, it's interesting the last couple of races how the other teams have kind of have clearly stepped uh, things up and and it, it could make an interesting second half of the the, the season. But it uh, it kind of like brings us back to the the, the original point is that you know just um, even if the teams do close the gap that Max Verstappen has just been driving at an incredibly high level for an incredibly long time and we've seen other drivers like Lewis do this in the past where they've been literally flawless for <laughs> not just race after race but sometimes for years on end it's uh, it's it's absolutely incredible but when, when you come up a driver like that be it a Max Verstappen in a Red Bull or a Lewis Hamilton in a Mercedes 
you know, they're not going to put a wheel wrong. Plus, they have a car that is super quick, super reliable, and it is very, very difficult to close the gap to uh, to a car and a driver like that. But uh, I, I've really enjoyed the last uh, couple of races. I, w- I would like to see some different faces up on the top step of this podium. But much like yourself, whereas if you asked me this question six weeks ago, I would have been like, yeah, it's it's Max or, or, or Checo on the top step of this podium all season and while I still think that they're odds on favorites I I'm, I'm more confident and and hopeful now that maybe we see Fernando maybe we see Lewis maybe we see George um up on the top step of the podium once or maybe a couple of times this season I, I you know I know that Ferrari's made a couple of gains here and there over the past couple of races I I'm a little bit hesitant to, to throw them into that conversation at the moment. But um, if they continue to improve, then maybe they get thrown in there as a, as a bit of an outsider. Not really willing to go there yet, but uh, hopeful that things will uh, continue that uh, to trend in the way that they're going. Okay, next story comes again from Racing News uh, 365 and uh, their uh, editor, Dieter Rankin, and uh, where he analyzes potential flaws in uh, Formula One CEO Stefano Domenicali's uh, idea or his his uh, openness into roading Grand Prix as, um, you know, the calendar expands. And, you know, we, we've heard potentially they'd like to go up to, um, you know, 30 races and anything in between what we have now and up to that uh, that you know, magic number of races, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, so Dieter takes a look at that because, you know, we had, you know, the, you know, most recently we saw the opportunity to, you know, have both the, the Nürburgring and Hockenheim on the calendar. And now we have neither. So Mark, do you want to explain a little bit uh, further what, uh, you know, what's going on and uh, what uh, Dieter Rankin is thinking here? Yeah, totally. And I, I think the the genesis, obviously, of this entire concept is there's massive global demand for Formula One races. We're going to see 24 next year, uh, obviously, with the reintroduction of China for the first time in, in five years. And, and obviously, we'll is be back. that going to be for sure? Yeah, because contractually, it's it done. Is. Yeah. Okay. And, and it's rumored okay. that it's going to be on the first cut. And usually we see the first cut of the 24 calendar or the next seasons the subsequent calendar at some point during the summer so 100 yes, percent they'll yeah, be yeah. they'll be back and i think the race organizers are eager to get back on the calendar especially since there's a chinese-born driver on the grid for the first time they're very excited about what the marketing and the promotional opportunities might exist what what promotional marketing opportunities might exist there uh, but i think the concept here is something that we saw back in the 90s. And in the 90s, we had two races in Germany. We had Nürburgring and we had Hockenheim. And the attendance at those races was very, very strong. And obviously, this is during peak Michael Schumacher era. And Bernie Eccleston at the time somehow managed to convince the two races to go on a rotational basis, meaning that, hey, rather than being on the calendar every single year, you'll alternate. So one year would be Hockenheim, the next year would be Nürburgring. And ultimately, that was a devastating devastating concept because in doing so, if I'm the race organizer at Hockenheim or I'm the race organizer at Nürburgring, my costs remain pretty static. I still have to maintain a world-class FIA grade one Formula One circuit, but I'm only getting half the income because I'm only hosting a race every two years. And I think as we know, Nürburgring fell off and Hockenheim fell off. And here we are sitting in 2023. We don't even have a German Grand Prix. We have a German team in Mercedes. We have another German team in Audi joining the grid. We have multiple German drivers in and around Formula One, and yet we don't have a German Grand Prix. So I think the risk here is is very much that, that if you're going to ask, and again, when he talks about the concept of, and Stefano Domenicali was talking about this earlier this week as well, that when you talk about the concept of rotations, uh, he's really talking about it specifically in Europe, where, hey, you have this really dense population base of 400 million people, but you have all of these potential race locations outside of Europe that are willing to spend huge amounts of money, whether it's Seoul, whether it's possibly New York, whether it's um, somewhere in Africa, you have all these other 
race organizers that are willing to spend 40, 50, 60, 80 million dollars a year to host a race, but you've got this traditional base in Europe. And I think one of the ways that he wants to satisfy the needs and demands of the European fan is by saying, look, we're not going to take Spa off the calendar, but Spa is only going to host every second year. And we're not going to take Hungary off the calendar. And I'm, I'm using this as an example, but they're only going to host every second year. So you continue to service the same circuits and the same fans but with a lower frequency. And I think the risk, of course, is that economically that doesn't make doesn't make a lot of sense. And what, what he writes here is the reason comes down to elementary economics. What looks good on paper holds major implications for infrastructure improvements and operational costs, which can only be amortized over double the payback period or thrice that where the three Grand Prix rotate annually. Consider this. A circuit needs to upgrade grandstands or its pits buildings or whatever at a cost of $10 million, So $2 million per annum over five years under an annual race contract. However, under a race share deal, that payback is 10 years or even 15 years with triple share. Difficult to sell the backers, be they politicians, banks, or investors. Thus, the choice for promoters is no deals or no upgrades, creating a vicious cycle uh, as Germany discovered. And I think the threats really come down to uh, Zandvoort, it comes down to Spa, it comes down to Britain, it comes down to Hungary, that we could live in a world where to satisfy the demands of all of these new race organizers outside of Europe, we could see some of these traditional world-class events only on the calendar every two, sometimes three years. And Quite frankly, I'm, I'm certainly not a fan. Like, I want to go to new places, and I want to go to Africa. I'd love to go to Seoul, uh, but I don't want to bankrupt the, I don't want to bankrupt the, I would say, the, I'm trying to think of the correct word here. I just, I don't want to bankrupt the legacy of F1 by going to Silverstone every three years, and as an yeah, example. Yeah, so yeah. I appreciate where he's coming from, and I really don't like the idea of race rotations. You, you know, maybe th there's a bit of, I don't want to say uh, underhandedness, but but maybe what they're an attempt in doing is trying to make these uh, venues make the decision for them. You know, Formula One could say, well, we're going to increase your hosting fees or whatever it is and make it uh, economically, uh, you know, unviable to do so, but maybe by rotating it. And because remember, there's like, and this is a story that goes back a couple of years, they were flexing on the fact that they they, they claim to have up to, to 40 venues, circuits worldwide, that wanted to host a Formula One race. And whether or not that is true, whether that number is accurate, who knows? But that that's I can't remember. I can't remember if that was Domenicali or who. Maybe it was Chase Carey. Maybe it was Carey that said that. Uh, anyhow, we, we don't really know. But maybe by you know, you know, trying to or I wouldn't say take away, but uh, you know, alternating between some of these circuits. Maybe, maybe then it just becomes economically unviable for them, and maybe they just decide, yeah, it's it's not worth our while, and um, some of them sort of fall off, as as you see with like Hockenheim. I mean, to me, it just seems very strange not to have a German Grand Prix. Doesn't matter if it's a Nurburgring, if it's at Hockenheim. I mean, you know, we had the French Grand Prix back after many many years, and then that fell off the calendar pretty quick. I mean, I know. That that uh, there was some debate about whether or not, you know, uh, Paul Ricard was a was a great circuit, but uh, an interesting uh, story to see, um, you know, to, to come up uh, like like that. So we'll follow along, see what happens. Next one, th this we're, we're going to jump now from Formula One to Formula E because this is something very much I could see happening in Formula One. So the, the DS Penske team was fined 25,000 euros after they apparently installed an RFID scanner at the entrance to pit lane. So this uh, apparently could collect tire data from other cars and give the team an advantage. In addition to the the, the fine, their driver Stoffel van Dorn and Jean-Eric Verne will be forced to start uh, from the pit lane. Um, there was a, an email that was uh, sent or a, an explanation uh, from the the Stewarts that was uh, sent to theverge.com that uh, that broke the story. Anyways, the the, the quote from the, uh, the from the stewards at the the Portland E Prix is as follows: "Quote, <coughs> excuse me, uh, 
uh, the stewards were advised by the technical delegate that the competitor had installed an RFID scanning equipment in the pit lane entry this morning that was able to collect live data from all cars. Firstly, it is uh, forbidden in general for competitors to install or replace any equipment in the pit lane. Secondly, the collection of data by this method gives the competitor a lot of information, which is a huge and unfair advantage. Taking all the circumstances together, the stewards feel that the uh, given a penalty is appropriate. End quote. So um, Van Dorn says that the, the team wasn't stealing data, that the, the RFID scanner was used to see what other tires the teams were using and said that it was normal for teams to use photographers in the pit lane to do the exactly the same thing. He uh, said that uh, he feels that uh, DS Penske found a clever or easy way to get the same uh, data and, uh, you know, got uh, got nailed for it. So RFID chips have been used in Formula E for the um, for their entire history. Uh, they are used basically to track the condition of tires, including temperatures, tire pressures, and uh, to really sort of encourage efficient use of them. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of funny that... Uh, well, not funny that this uh, should uh, should happen but I could uh, very much see um, that something like this could happen in Formula One I, I don't think that this is a Formula E thing I think that this is a formula like 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 a motorsport thing in general that that teams are, are looking for advantages uh, anywhere that they can uh, that they can do it so all right a anything to add to that hammy or should we jump ahead I feel like we're on fire this morning so the next one comes from uh, speedcafe.com. So this is uh, regarding the McLaren uh, Stage B uh, spec rollout in which it is supposedly not strategic. So I, I don't know how uh, it could not be strategic considering they've kind of struggled. They've been a little bit better in the last couple of races. Uh, anyways, uh, Andrea Stella, the team principal at uh, McLaren said, quote, not strategic. It's just as early as we could. First of all, to design them and produce them. Some parts require just a little bit more time to be redesigned or evolved, and some parts that were a little uh, quicker. So not strategic, just as early as possible. And if you kind of think back to, uh, you know, the start of the season where McLaren was now or then compared to where they are now, they've kind of uh, recovered a little bit. I think that uh, it was very much an emergency situation. Guys, let's get these, uh, you know, upgrades designed. Let's get them built. Let's get them onto the car ASAP or else this is going to be a very, very long <laughs> and bad season. Daily, it, it's funny, like you and I talked here back in, I guess, February when McLaren had unveiled their car and Zach Brown was just like, hey, just understand that this isn't the final product and we're probably, and I'm putting words in his mouth, but we're probably not going to be particularly competitive to start the season. We've certainly seen some flashes, but it's encouraging to know that they have a B-spec concept in development. Um, Toby Gruner also tweeted, I think earlier this morning or late last night, that according to our information, and this will be confirmed probably by the time the podcast drops, but McLaren will run significant new bodywork for, for the Austrian Grand Prix. That includes side pods and the engine cover and, and new floor. And the new floor is critical because 80% of the downforce that's generated with the current generation Formula One car comes from the floor. So to introduce a new floor is a pretty radical, uh, potentially a pretty radical upgrade for that for that vehicle yeah we'll hope so i mean they, they were for me a disappointment at the start of the season so if they can recover and, and do something uh, good and have a strong remainder of the season i think that would be a uh, great uh, for mclaren so finally before we jump into the preview for the austrian grand prix one uh, piece of news from uh and this comes from the uh, the f1.com or the Formula1.com official website. And uh, Audi have signed Swiss racing pro Neil Jane as their new sim driver. And uh, Jenny is a Formula test and reserve driver for Red Bull Racing. He's also a member of the Porsche factory team and has won the FIA World Endurance Championship in 2016 and is also a winner at uh, Le Mans. So I think that, uh, you know, a, a person like Neil Jenny is uh, somebody that ticks all the right boxes if you're a new outfit like Audi as you're. Uh, you know, winding up your operation and uh, getting ready for your inaugural season, even though that it is a, a couple of uh, years away. So things obviously very busy behind the scenes. Daily, daily, daily. Before we jump to the Austrian Grand Prix, it's time for F1 Academy Compound. Now I'm going to pause because in post-production, I'm going to play the new F1 Academy Compound jingle. <laughs> 
Welcome to F1 Academy Compound. This week, we are going to provide a big update. So, of course, the F1 Academy Championship includes seven rounds. We just finished round four at Circuit Zandvoort in the Netherlands. And no surprise, at least to us, friend of the show, Hamda Alkobasi, absolutely dominated. So, of course, each round has three races, including a reverse grid race, which is the second race of the three. In the first race, which was June 24th, Hamda Alkobasi took pole position. She took the fastest lap and she won the race. In the reverse grid race, Abby Pulling, the British driver, finished on the top step of the podium. And then in race three, once again, Hamda Alkobasi fast or had pole position and the fastest lap. And was the winning driver, which means if we look at the current F1 Academy Drivers Championship, we have Marta Garcia. She is currently on top with 155 points. Just five points behind her is Hamda Alcobesi with 150 points. Currently sitting number six, Hamda's sister, Omna Alcobesi, and currently sitting in number 13, Megan Gilks on 21 points. Of course, Megan Gilks is going to be joining our show in the very, very, very near future. Her performance this year has been a little bit up and down, although she's had some absolute flashes. She finished, she had a P5 um, in Austria, and she had a P10 in Austria. She had a P8 in Valencia, and I think she had a P8 in Catalonia, and of course, she had a P7 during the reverse grid race here at Zandvoort. So definitely sky's the limit for her, but Huge shout out to to friend of the show, Hamda Alcobasi. And of course, if we ever have the opportunity to bring her on again, we certainly will because I know that her show, her appearance was very, very, very well received by our entire audience. Okay, on that, uh, I'm excited to kind of transition over to a little bit of conversation about the Austrian Grand Prix. So, of course, we're going to Austria. It is, I guess, our second sprint race. I don't even know. It's been a long season already, but we have a sprint race weekend in Austria, which, of course, means that Friday is super busy. So, to recap, the weekend looks like this. On Friday, we're going to have practice, and we're going to have qualifying for the Grand Prix on Sunday. That means this practice session is super important because teams get one shot to dial in their setup for qualifying and they got to get it right. So typically FP1, a little bit boring, people roll out, let's do a couple of laps, kind of enjoy the scenery, get back to the pits, share some of our findings. In this case, they're going to be pumping out as many laps as possible because they need to get as much data as possible so the engineers can make decisions about the car setup. Following free practice on the Friday, we have qualifying. Of course, that is the qualifying for the Grand Prix on Sunday. And then Saturday is action-packed because we have the sprint shootout, which is effectively the qualifying session that sets the grid for the sprint race later the, that day on Saturday. And then on Saturday, we also have the sprint race. Uh, of course, the sprint race this year is distributing more points to more people than we had seen in prior years. And then finally, on the Sunday, we have the Grand Prix. So it's a pretty action-packed race weekend. And a couple of things that I wanted to share right off the top is one, Pirelli has shared the tires that we're going to be bringing. Like in Canada, we're going to be bringing the softest compounds available. We're going to be bringing the C3, which is kind of the medium range, but that's going to function as the hard. Interestingly, at some races, that's the soft, but we're going to bring the C3 hard, the C4 medium, the C5 soft. Historically, historically, this is treated as a two-stop race. You can certainly do a one-stop race, but given the conditions of the aggregate. It's a little bit older. It's a little bit more abrasive. And some of the braking zones will often put a lot of wear and tear on the tires. Plus, given the nature and the makeup of this track, it's really difficult for Formula One drivers to keep those tires cool. And if your tires are overheating, they tend to come apart much, much more quickly. So I would probably expect to see a two-stop race. But again, we're bringing the softest tires in the range. Now, the Austrian Grand Prix, I, I think, can be a little bit deceiving. And when I say it can be a little bit deceiving, what I mean by that is, on paper, the track seems relatively simple, right? It's it's one of the shortest tracks in the world from an open-wheel racing perspective. It only has 10 turns. And quite frankly, some of those turns like T2 really aren't a turn at all because the drivers barely have to react to them. But it is an incredibly, incredibly challenging track for drivers. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, the elevation's pretty high, that this track is 700 meters above sea level. It's carved out of the side of a mountain. And because it's carved out of the side of a mountain, it means that there is significant elevation changes. To kind of walk you through this a little bit, uh, 
from the from the green light, it's a very, very short run to turn one. And turn one, especially at the start of the race, can be incredibly challenging because it's a very, very, very sharp elbow. Teams need to carry as much speed as they possibly can because from T1 up to T3 is really a very long, very fast straight up the mountain. And to be really effective, you need to be able to carry speed. But T1 is a very, very challenging corner. And quite frankly, it's surprising to me that we don't see more cars come together from the start. So it's really important. It is at every Grand Prix, but it's critically important for cars at the front of the grid to get a great start. Because if you don't, you're going to get caught up in traffic and absolute chaos can happen at T1. Now, the race circuit has three DRS zones on the start finish straight. It has a huge DRS zone from T1 up to T3, and it has another DRS zone from T3 to T4, which is another long straight. Now, I spoke a couple of minutes ago about the fact that this circuit is challenging from a tire management perspective. It's also incredibly challenging for drivers from a brake management perspective, and it's something that we don't talk a lot about on this show, but the challenge with this circuit is there isn't a lot of opportunity for drivers to keep their brakes cool. And if your brakes aren't cool, even though they're running these carbon ceramic discs, which are less likely to overheat than the kind of disc brake that you would get in your typical uh, Chevy Corvette or Ford Mustang, um, they still have the potential to overheat. And if your brakes overheat, what that means is ultimately your braking response is going to be super unpredictable and much, much, much slower, which means you need to brake much earlier to be able to slow going into a corner than you would otherwise. So the circuit is challenging because when you go into T1, obviously it's a very sharp, very challenging turn. You get up to T3. T3 is also an incredibly, incredibly difficult turn it almost turns back on itself it's not like another elbow but the challenge with this turn is that it's deceptively banked which means that if you take it too sharp there's the potential to lock up your front tires so you have to take it a little bit wide now the reason it's so challenging on the brakes on this circuit is because the brakes don't really have the opportunity to cool t1 to t3 is a very short but very fast very straight very straight run, and then you're immediately on the brakes going into T3. You come out of T3. It's a very fast, very short straight. You're on the brakes again going into T4, and then you have a little bit of an opportunity to recover in turns 5, 6, 7, and 8. Then you have another quick straight. It's not a GRS zone. You have another quick straight going into T9. You come out of T9. T10 is a blind corner for these drivers, and then you've got to be on the throttle very quickly, not too quickly because you don't want to snap of over steer and to lose the back end but you need to be on the throttle very very quickly but smoothly and then you have that long start finish straight and then again once again you are hard on the brakes because you have that very 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 sharp corner now typically to keep the brakes cool you would reconfigure the brake ducts so of course the brake ducts are the mechanisms that capture the air and pull the air into the brakes to keep them cool but the problem is brake ducts are terrible for aerodynamics because they create drag. So the drivers typically have to manage brake temperature in other ways. And that's typically by lifting and coasting. So typically when you're talking about T3, T4, T5, T1, it means coming off the throttle a little bit earlier than you normally would. Because of course, when you come off the throttle, the car's naturally going to slow. Um, and that prevents the need to rely on the brakes so much. But it does mean you compromise and you forfeit a little bit of performance. The other consideration and the other thing that makes braking so challenging on the circuit is that really from T, say T4 back down to T10, a lot of that is downhill. So the brake system is also facing gravity. There's some pretty quick turns, but you're also going down the side of a mountain, which is just incredible. So in terms of the history of this track, of course, it has a very long history. Uh, the circuit was reintroduced in 2011 because, of course, it was purchased by Red Bull. Um, it was massively renovated. It was turned into its current configuration, um, and it rejoined the Formula One circuit right around that time. Since that time, it's had some eventful, uh, some certainly eventful tracks. We don't see a lot of virtual safety cars. We don't see a lot of safety cars. I think in the last five years, we've only had five safety cars, period, of three of those came in one year. Um, it's it's a forgiving track in some senses because it's so long and there's so much runoff area. But if you make a mistake, the likelihood of being able to recover your position is, is very, very, very low. So I'm just going to quickly bring up 
just going to quickly bring up some of the more recent, more recent results, just so we can recap that real quick. So bringing up the old Austrian Grand Prix. Yeah, so if we look at the most recent performances, so we returned here in 2014. Nico Rosberg won in 14-15, Lewis won in 16, but of course 2016 was the year that he and Nico came together, and I think Nico's probably still a little bit sore about that. Valtteri Bottas won in 17, so you had this run of Mercedes dominance from 14 to 17. Max won in 18 and 19 before Mercedes returned to the top podium in 2020. Of course, that was the COVID-shortened year, and we actually raced there twice because we had the Austrian Grand Prix and we had the Styrian Grand Grand Prix. Max Verstappen won in 21. That, of course, was his first championship year. And Charles Leclerc won in 2022. So uh, an interesting mix of winners over the last few years at this circuit. Now, I, I think the question is, what are we expecting? One, I think there's the possibility of rain this weekend, um, and I'm not totally clear what the likelihood is, but there's certainly a possibility, and people have been feeding us weather information. Obviously, if it's wet, the result, the outcome could be very unpredictable. Um, that said, though, Max Verstappen still has the best car. He's still the fastest driver on the circuit this year. I don't think that's negotiable. Um, he's also an extremely good driver in wet conditions. But again, running 50, 60, 70 laps on a Formula One circuit that's carved out of the side of the mountain with all these elevation changes is going to be significantly more complex than running a wet race at somewhere like Canada, which at least has flat elevation throughout. So I, I think the, the question for me is, what could we expect to see from Ferrari? Obviously, Helmut Marco had spoke greatly about the fact that they were posting some incredibly fast lap times during race trim, during race conditions. That was great to see. Um, this isn't necessarily the type of circuit that Aston Martin is expected to flourish at. They've done really well at hybrid circuits and street circuits this year. This is a dedicated circuit. I'm obviously excited to see what they're capable of bringing, especially since they brought that great upgrade package last weekend. We know McLaren's bringing some upgrades. Mercedes possibly could be very, very effective. Again, they brought some big upgrades for Monaco. They were very effective in Spain. They were equally as effective in Canada. Of course, unfortunately, George Russell went into the wall and ultimately DNF'd. But there's a lot of things that we can talk about going into this race. Now, I don't want to, other than the fact that I would expect that Red Bull should be very, very good here. The Aston Martin's a little bit draggy. The Mercedes is a little bit more slippery, but maybe this could be a breakthrough weekend for Ferrari and maybe they find their way onto the podium as well. But I would say that from a Red Bull perspective, this is going to be a really important weekend for Sergio Perez because this is the track that, one, it's not only owned by Red Bull, but it's as if the track was designed for the current iteration of that Red Bull RB19 car that he should have every Every opportunity this weekend, especially given the fact that there's two qualifying sessions and a sprint race, he has every opportunity to regain some of that confidence. Now, the reality is if Max goes in and dominates this weekend like we would expect, takes that sprint race weekend and takes the Grand Prix race win, he's simply going to put more space between him and Sergio Perez. But I think on the flip side, while this could be a weekend that Red Bull absolutely dominates, dominates and just kind of pads their Constructors' Championship lead and they pad Max's WDC lead, this could also be a weekend weekend that kind of mixes things up at P2, P3, and possibly P4, because again, there's so many points available because we've got this sprint race. And if Mercedes goes in and they have a great setup and the conditions are good for them and George and, Ma and Max, George and Lewis excellent or excel and deliver really well um, from a racecraft perspective, they could score a bunch of points. Um, and that could put some gap between them and Aston Martin, who's currently sitting P3 in the Constructors' Championship. And likewise, I say that, hey, this is a weekend where Sergio Perez can rebuild his confidence. You know, maybe, possibly, potentially the same thing can happen with Lance Stroll, that maybe, maybe Aston Martin goes in this race weekend. And I think we have every reason to expect that Fernando Alonso is going to put in some great performances. Maybe Lance Stroll goes in and puts in a couple of really great performances and helps recover some of his confidence because I think as much as we talk about the confidence of Sergio Perez right now, maybe maybe Lance is battling with the exact same thing. Maybe there's some psychological effect here or a complex. And this is a great opportunity for him to go in and pound in some great laps and deliver some great results for the Silverstone-based Aston Martin team. So I think from my perspective, I'll certainly be looking at Mercedes this weekend, certainly be looking at Ferrari this weekend, certainly be looking at Aston Martin. And obviously Red Bull at the very, very top. So not a huge fan of the sprint weekend. I think it asks a lot of the casual F1 fan to be available for three days. And 
I know the the appeal originally was that, hey, we've got three days of racing, but it certainly asks a lot. So maybe we're lucky that it only happens six times a year. But certainly I'm excited to excited to get into this race weekend. It's been a couple of weeks since we were in Canada. Uh, Pirelli.com uh, called out a couple of things that I thought were interesting. One, this is the shortest lap of the year. And they write, even though the Red Bull ring ranks as only the fifth shortest circuit on the 2023 Formula One calendar, those long straights help to actually make it shortest of all in terms of lap time. So obviously the fastest lap. Uh, they also speak to the fact that, hey, this is carved out of the side of the mountain. And obviously you have that 700 meter elevation to contend with. Obviously, it's not like going to Mexico City, which is astronomically high. And it really, really really, really puts, uh, I would say, a lot of pressure on that internal combustion engine and the turbocharger and the boost and the pressure that's being generated. They have to do a lot of reconfiguring, but it is something to account for and certainly something that the drivers have to be aware of when it comes to managing their own fitness and things like that. So obviously, I think we're excited. We're all excited. Uh, the championship is getting exciting. And and, you know, I, I've talked a lot about this over the last couple of weeks, and I think I opened by asking both uh, Adam Birds and Sam Cooper this recently, but for the first time really since maybe the beginning of 2022, I'm genuinely excited about sitting down and watching a Formula One race because... I think Red Bull has dominated so much and Aston Martin prior to this year was such a disappointing and Ferrari, even though they seem to have a fairly slippery car that had some great top end speed, you couldn't trust that they were going to make the right decisions from a strategy perspective and you couldn't trust that the drivers weren't going to make an error during the race. But all of a sudden, we've got a Mercedes team that looks to be um, as good as they've been since 2021, certainly far better than at any point during 2022. Aston Martin has been an absolute revelation and I think we're starting to see things from Ferrari that suggest that they're starting to bring things together and the strategy that they implemented in Canada was amazing because it helped them score a couple of P5 finishes which was really good. Kind of a quick recap before we lock this up and before we check out, turn off the lights in the studio. Max Verstappen currently leads the Drivers Championship with 195 points to Sergio Perez at 126. Fernando's currently P3, 117. Lewis, 102. Carlos Sainz, 68. George Russell, 65. Charles Leclerc, 54. Lance Stroll, 37, Esteban Ocon, 29, and Pierre Gasly, 15. Uh, and from a top three, top four perspective in the Constructors' Championship, obviously Red Bull number one with 321 points, followed by Mercedes with 167, Aston Martin with 154, and Ferrari with 122. So pretty tight, P2, P3, P4. All right, folks, thank you so much for joining us. I, I hope you had a lot of fun as we kind of banged through this podcast. And again, third podcast of the week, just incredible. We've had some really great guests and we've got tons of great guests and tons of great content coming up for the rest of the summer. Once again, my name is Mark Hamilton. You can follow on me on Twitter and Instagram at Mark and Van City. And if you like what we do and you like this podcast, please give us a follow on Twitter at F one pod And more importantly, if you listen on Spotify, if you can give us a rating and if you listen on Apple if you can give us a rating and a review that would be incredibly incredibly appreciated we'll be back once again Sunday because we want to recap what should be an exciting Austrian Grand Prix weekend until then have a great weekend bye for now I feel like a locomotive sipping drinking Arizona mixtape just around the corner did a lot in California can't wait to drop this don't you yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song, and my songs gon' break through like a running back.